0: This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where your host, that's me, Erica Anderson, brings you unique and interesting conversations with Christian women working in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. See you there.
2: Hey everybody, Joel here at the top of the show. Troy and I are excited to be bringing another deep dive, this one on Joan of Arc. And if you're new to Revive Thoughts, occasionally, every once in a while, Troy and I will do what we call these deep dive episodes, which are usually a two-hour episode where we just focused on the history of a moment in time in church history. We've done one on the Salem Witch Trials, we've done one on the First Crusade, and now we're doing one on Joan of Arc. We like to pick topics that, you know, you're probably aware of, but maybe you don't know all the details about it. While the full two-hour episode is only available for Patreons in the Patreon feed, We like to put out kind of an abridged version here on the main feed to make people aware of what the content is like. So give this a listen. Hopefully you'll learn a thing or two about Joan of Arc. And if you find it interesting, consider becoming a part of our Patreon team supporting us. I'm curious, how much do you know about Joan of Arc off the top of your head? Is it something that you, you took a fascination in and have done some research yourself? Or is it just something that's kind of something that you're aware of based on just pulp culture through the years? I asked some people uh, around me what uh, what they knew about Joan of Arc. Um, She died. She was a wretch. She led a group of people in battle. I don't know if she was actually there in the battle.
3: Joan
0: of Arc, they made a movie about her. She believed she was told by God to lead an army. She was, like, really young when she did it. Like, still, like, 16 or 18. Like, she was young.
2: Young peasant girl who had a vision from the Lord to help the French revolt against an oncoming enemy, and later was deemed a saint and burnt the stake. Do you know
3: who the oncoming enemy was?
2: I don't remember. Was uh, it, it the English? I feel like, I feel like it's always the English fighting the French, so.
3: I think Catholic.
2: No, yeah, well, it's, it's good. She was Catholic,
0: yeah. Do you, do you have a picture in mind of Joan of Arc? I think she had, like, short brown hair. What <laughs> <laughs> little
2: All right. We're going to jump in here. It's, it's, this is about an hour into the episode, so we've, we've literally spent probably about 50 minutes setting up the era. This is taking place in the 1300s. It's during one of the worst centuries of all time. You have the Black Death. You have the worst famines the world has ever seen, and it's all happening during what we call the Hundred Years' War, where France and England were at war. So there might be some things in here that we mentioned that are implied because we've talked about them already in the full episode, but I still think it's very informative and a lot of fun, even in this specific context of us pulling out. We're starting right at the beginning of Joan's story. She comes on the scene here in the 1300s, and this is how she's introduced to the world here. Joan of Arc.
3: Uh, steps into this situation and changes everything
2: 1412
3: she's born there are questions about her upbringing Um, the story has always gone that she was a peasant but i did see some academics saying no no she can't be a peasant she could ride horses she could speak to lords with persuasion she could lead armies her family had to be higher up but there's no evidence that she was anything other than a peasant. And besides the conjecture of academics saying, well, we just don't think she could, there's no evidence that they're right. If you automatically exclude the supernatural or anything special happening with humans, you you have to explain those very answers. Where did she learn to ride horses? Why could she speak to lords and convince them of what's going on? And why was she able to lead armies? I understand why academic people want to say that she is a higher class family, but the problem is all the evidence shows she was born to peasants. In fact, we know who those peasants were. Her brothers will be around for a long time after she dies. We, we know the family. And so it's really hard to say she was born to higher up family. It just we, we already know where she came from. We talked about it a bit but peasants are not considered very important and they're looked down on this whole century of the 1300s that lead into the 1400s the people who took it the hardest were the peasants Um, they could not leave the land of their lords easily that's what being a peasant is you're tied down to the land and you're stuck you basically could not leave because if you left you had to have a job on the other side of that fence wherever you were going or you would starve because there was no real other way to make money Sadly, because the English raids had often happened on these towns in France, many people were just having a hard time even getting a spot to get a job. In fact, Joan of Arc's own village would be burnt down um, and would be raided a couple different times, and especially at one point burnt down, as the English were targeting the villages and the peasants to demoralize the French and to take away their food. Uh, she did not have what you would call an ideal childhood, and we and we know this. We This is not... Again, conjecture, like maybe she was a higher up family. We, we know where she was. Before this next part though, it's kind of important to explain this a little bit about how we know Joan of Arc. You're saying, okay, we know this. Well, how do we know this, right? Was this a medieval tale that was passed to us? Where are we getting all this from? Um, some have said that she is the most written about woman from medieval history. What we know actually comes about from the testimonies given in the English court of law, which you'll hear about in a little bit at the end of the episode. This meant lawyers and judges and security guards, prosecutors, all that stuff are cross-examining and arguing and witnesses are called in to verify or not verify what, we'll ha- what we know about ha- what happened. This doesn't mean it was perfect. We-, we see in the Salem Witch Trials that you know courts can definitely get it wrong. But it also shows this isn't just hearsay, or you know, the home, the, the the Iliad, or something, where just some story is made up, and everyone goes, "That sounds great." Um, sometimes we look back at the people of the past and say, "You know, these people are kind of stupid. They don't know what they're doing." But remember. They knew how to conduct courtrooms. We learned courtrooms from them. They they knew about crazy people too. They had, it was not like something they had never heard of. They had people who had mental challenges as well. And they were aware of those situations and they were aware of conniving con men as well. They know about these things just as much as we do. What we have was written down and still can be read and preserved. This story, this testimony is actually held in like the Library of France, exactly as it was we had the originals, uh, which means that this as wild as the story is, This is the official state-sanctioned version of events. This is, France has gone through and said, this is how it happened. We don't understand, maybe, but this is what we have on the record is officially what happened according to the English. These aren't even, this isn't the good guys, okay? Like, the French would want Joan of Arc to be cool. The English are saying, this is how we think it happened. And they're the bad guys. Like, this would be Joan of Arc's enemies saying all these miracles, we say they they are happening, but we just don't think they were god's miracles or something like that
2: yeah but they don't think she's crazy exactly which is important
3: the english do not accuse her of being crazy they accuse her of heresy they accuse her of things but they do not accuse her of being out of her mind so as you go through this story and want to say but she's gotta be crazy right well that's not what the english her enemies were saying and Mm -hmm. if they could have proven she was crazy they had a lot of reason to do so because she was very popular and if you can say look she's a mad woman we've proven it Well, there you go. You've ruined her testimony and you've ruined that whole movement behind her. This is not just some strange story someone told. This is the royal courts that were figuring out, trying to find out, was Joan, was there something divine happening?
2: Yeah. And this is this type of stuff that Troy and I like love to talk about (laughs) and debate off mic. Uh, Essentially, it all just boils down to this moment in her life when she was 13 years old. Joan of Arc began to hear voices that she believed were from God, and that God was sending her on a mission to save France for God. And this is the, the question that this episode centers around, right, Troy mentioned that that's what people wanted to know. Was Joan of Arc crazy? Was she making up these voices? Or is it possible that God was communicating to her uh, with specific tasks and specific information that the rest of the people didn't have. Was she crazy? Was she schizophrenic? You know, was she uh, had a mental disorder that was creating these voices? Was she putting on an act? And as we go throughout this episode, Troll and I, you know, we'll we'll, we'll speculate. We'll give our opinions on it. But it's also something that we try to approach, approach as non-bias yeah. as we can, because this gets fuzzy. We, we have a lot of... If you start with the perspective that
3: nobody can hear a voice from God, then you've already tainted the water because you've already said the spiritual doesn't exist. As Christians, we know that spiritual does. So we try to step back even more and be a little more neutral than that and say, okay, well, if it can happen, Mm -hmm. what would it look like?
2: Yeah, Troy and I want to be very careful that we never say that something God did didn't happen. We don't want to discredit God's work that he's working here. But as we said at the beginning of the show... It also doesn't mean that, you know, just because someone says something was of God doesn't necessarily mean that it was for sure. You could be making it all up, but we want to entertain the idea that God is at work and does use people through it. And it's, it's again, it's kind of something fun to, to theorize and debate about. We do see a, a lot of instances throughout church history. Augustine heard voices from God when he got converted. John G. Patton heard voices of Pacific Islanders, begging him to come to them during his dreams and also throughout the day. St. Patrick had a dream of many voices crying out to him to come to Ireland. St. Francis believed that he heard a voice of God talking to him to, to change his lifestyle. Harriet Tubman famously thought that she heard God's voice telling her to flee the South. And you might say, okay, well, they heard God to speak to them on a specific occasion, a specific mission. Joan of Arc, she Claims she regularly heard voices in her head, but people often talk about Martin Luther having these arguments with the devil. There's this famous story of him throwing an inkwell at what he supposedly claims was the devil tormenting him as he was working on translating the Bible, and there's a stain on the wall of his study where that ink was splashed up against the wall, and you, you can supposedly go see it to this day but i don't think anyone would claim martin luther is crazy or schizophrenic and again we're not we're not saying one way or another at this moment whether joan of arc was in talks with god or not but the point we're trying to make is we if we're going to write someone in history off for one thing we want to be consistent to write other people off for the same thing and we don't write martin luther off in history. So what are things about Joan of Arc? You know, was it because she was Catholic that she gets written off as crazy? But while there were kind of pre-reformers, definitely in this era, for sure. This is over 100 years before Luther came on the scene. This is 100 years before the Great Reformation, as we think of it, took place. Luther, I mean, he he technically he was a Catholic when the Lord started using him there. And, you know, he obviously started a huge move, and that led to our Protestantism and and everything along those lines. But God uses people in all types of places. What's interesting in her story specifically is that no one ever accuses her of being crazy throughout the story, which is kind of shocking to see because she was tested, and as Troy says, the royal courts, the theologians of the day, challenged her and tested her with extreme bias, with prejudice trying to prove that she was heretical or that these voices that she was hearing were not supernatural in some way and most of these people would end up joining her coming to her side coming alongside her and believing in who she was as a person some think about this This is kind of a fun thought experiment here what if you know we would look at this and say like God doesn't speak to people in voices You know in today's day and age why would we think that what if because that's how people thought that god communicated with people back in that day that that's how god chose to communicate with people in that day because that's how you know people's perception that's how they thought that god would communicate with them
3: he yeah he as if he goes okay you think i speak to you directly in this case i need some history to move i'm not ready for france to become an english territory that doesn't fit in with my grand scheme So what if I am going to do exactly what they know? Maybe we don't do it today because God is speaking and using things a little differently. But in this case, he did exactly what they were expecting him to do.
2: Yeah, yeah. So again, Troy, we'll get into our opinions. (laughs) Is she crazy? Is there something supernatural going on here that remains to be talked about, that remains to be thought about, that remains to be seen in the grand scale of eternity, whether or not she was actually crazy or not. But when it comes to how we look at the information, when it comes to how we analyze it, again, Troy and I want to try to look at this from an objective point of view, and we don't want to have double standards. We want to be careful we don't doubt how the Holy Spirit works and how the Holy Spirit moves, while also maintaining good theology and testing it against what we see in the Bible, You know, as scripture tells us to do.
3: Yeah, and, and maybe one or fi- two final thoughts on this uh, is, I think, important. A, to, to be fair to the supernatural, I get, these voices could be demonic. I mean, you got to just put it out there that, sure. you know, if, if there are supernatural things that can speak, God is on the table, but you do have to include the other side could also be having a say as well. And the other thing we will say is that, interestingly, Joan of Arc originally rejects the voices. She told the voices, um, which were urging her to do good and do the king and save them, and she said, I'm an illiterate peasant girl. I don't know how to ride horses. I don't know how to fight. I'm not going to do this basically. And she says, according to her testimony, it took her three years before she just finally gave up and said, okay, God, if you want me to do this, I will do this. I will listen to what I'm being told to do. But it, she does not originally go, oh, cool. I'm going to go save France. Let me run off and do it. At about the age of 15, she tells her parents in the village uh, that she grew up in, you know, the village had been burnt down. She'd been there her whole life, peasant girl, like all the rest of them, and says, I, uh, I'm being told by God that I have to go save France and I, and that these voices are telling me. And so at first people mock, laugh. They tell her, yeah, you're crazy. Um, but by the end of the year, the village is behind her and her uncle will be the person who escorts her to a local land, a local lord to help her. We don't know what she did to convince them that she wasn't crazy, but she did manage to convince the entire village to stand behind her and to, you know, escort her off. That is in and of itself just quite a feat. Imagine what it would take to convince your hometown, you know, you were on a mission from God, your friends, your family, your neighbors. That is no small task. And she was able to do it in a couple months. Uh, The noble Lord, he rejects her at first. The first time she comes, she goes, hey, you know, I'm here to I'm here to help win France. We got it. We got some things we got to do. No, I, I don't think you are. Um, but she spends time just kind of going up to the guards of this nobleman pretty much every day, just saying, Hey, I really need to speak to the Lord. Can you get him to give me a second chance? And over time they go, you know, I think the Lord got the wrong, this guy got the wrong impression of her. She's not a witch. She's not feeble minded. She's a quiet, uh, in their own words, they would say, she's this kind of quiet, firm believer. She just really believes she's sent by God to save France. So they, they kind of get moved for, towards her. They get, they get convinced of her mission too. So she goes, look, I can help win the war effort. I can get us to victory. And he says, "Can you give me some kind of sign that you are being sent on a mission from God? If this is a mission from God, show me some evidence that you're from God." And so she says, "Okay, I want you to know that Orleans is currently losing the siege to the English, um, and you're going to hear of it very soon. A few days later, a few days later, a report comes from some messengers that rides in, and they tell him exactly what Joan had said: that we're losing Orleans, and it's it's not very much longer before that city is gone to the English too." And he remembers what Joan said. He he sends them in to her and says, okay, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm going to go ahead and escort you to the king, let the king kind of deal with you. You did do what you said you were going to do, and so I'm going to accept that too. So he sends her to the king, the man that's supposed to be king on the French side, a man named Charles. Charles is a very important person in this story. In some ways, you can't have a Joan without Charles. And he is the person that Joan believes she is sent to help he had not yet been crowned uh, king of the French. You know, one of one of the biggest reasons was the oil that was always used to crown the f- kings of France was in one part of the country, uh, Rhymes, very far away, and that it was deeply in English control. And without that oil. Or trying to go get that oil and getting attacked and getting defeated on the way. Without that, you really couldn't have the king of France. Right. But without any way to get to it, you didn't. So you had this guy. He's supposed to be king. But he's not crowned. Nothing special happening. He is just on the outskirts of society. And that is who Joan is going to be sent to.
2: Yeah. like And It's like an anointing oil, not like a, not like a crude oil. Yeah, this <laughs> isn't a petroleum for his car. No, like a, yeah, like an anointing oil <laughs> that way. So Joan was given a war horse by the lord of the land, despite not knowing how to ride a horse. And she hopped on and rode it perfectly, which is kind of a a big point in the story. Peasants were not given horses to ride and train on. To be able to ride a horse like this out of the gate is like throwing your keys at someone who's never driven a car, and they take off no problem and manage a 12-day road trip with no prior experience. Oh, and also she's riding through enemy-infested territory that will happily, you know, take off your head if they find you. So she's having to maneuver the horse very specifically, ride through towns, be stealthy at times. Uh, it, it takes a lot of talent. So that's one of the, one of the first things where we're like, how does this girl know how to ride a horse like that? And on the way there, Joan donned on the men's war gear and cut her hair short, trying to blend in with other soldiers of that era. And this whole concept of uh, Joan of Arc Cross-dressing, in air quotes, is something that we will talk about. It's, it's a part of her story. It's part of her controversy, and we'll get more into that and our thoughts on that. But when Joan was getting close, this this peasant girl that was sent by God, when the king himself heard that this lady was riding on her way to come and meet him, he set up a decoy. He hid in the crowd, and he put a decoy king on the throne, dressed him in all of his royal garbs and he put on plain clothes and hid among other knights and counselors and nobility in the courtroom there and when Joan arrived on the scene a a woman who had never seen the king herself she marched straight up to the king in his plain clothes hunched over on the side with trying to blend in with the crowd and she took a knee before him and said God grant you a long life and the plain dressed Man pointed to the throne and said, you mean the king over there? And she said, no, it is you. The king asked her, asked her what she wanted, and she said, my name is Jean the Maid. Jean Jean, the Maid, Jean is actually what her actual name, like, that's how we would call her now. That's what her name translates to in our English, and the maid being just a peasant, right? So yeah. she's Jean the Maid. We call her Joan of Arc. She's got a cool title in <laughs> retrospect. Jean the Maid didn't catch on like Joan no, of Arc. No, right? Jean the Maid. And the King of Heaven speaks unto you by me, saying that you shall be anointed and crowned at Rheims, the city that they. And this was the city they had to get to, where they had that anointing oil to crown the the King of France. So he naturally wanted to know what he needed to do. And she said, send her, send her to lead the armies at Orleans, and the victory would be theirs. The nobles and the people scoffed and laughed at a woman leading an army. But the king granted it, and an army was being sent to Orleans, and Joan was tasked to lead it. But this wasn't all of a sudden. She went through rigorous questioning, a lot of questioning. She was taken to a countess, who made sure that she was a virgin and not a witch. She then had France's greatest theologians question her. And they all gave her a clear bill of sanity. You know, th- there was no heresy found in her testimony, and her claims. And this was at a time, again, where the church was really trying to rebuild its reputation. The Catholic Church, again, I would say as an all-time low as far as how the public viewed them and their corruption. So they didn't want heresy within the church. If there was something that they thought was a red flag with Joan of Arc, I feel like they, they would have, it would have, they thought... It would have been in their best interest to to pull her from that position. They even did uh, like a, what we would consider like a background check, except it's like a medieval version of a background check, where they sent scribes to her home village and interviewed everyone and questioned everyone, and nothing came back crazy. No, no one ever. No one said she was crazy. In fact, everyone vouched for. Her. Everyone was a fan of Joan. Everyone believed Joan and her story and her testimony. And by the way,
3: I, I I didn't actually write this into my notes, but as I'm just listening to the story, I mean, just imagine you're a peasant girl at the age of 14, 15, 16. Maybe you're, just imagine you're a girl at 16 or whatever, or what you were doing at 16. You're, this is the first time you've ever seen a king. This is the first time you've ever been kind of in a palace-like situation. I mean, how nervous would you be? Would you speak with such confidence? I mean, she's just doing things so differently that I think it, you just, it, we, we talk about like, what we're talking a lot about like, well, what is, her, is she actually sent on a divine mission? But just as a human, As a teenager you were a peasant you know you were a peasant and farming or whatever you know a few months ago suddenly you're in a palace for the first time of your life that experience alone is easy to miss in all this but this is exactly what happens here Uh, at this point she's been tested by the king she was tested by that noble lord from before she was tested by those captain of the guards that were around the nobleman. she was tested by the theologians she's tested by the countess she was tested back home and in her village that's a lot of people, and they all come to the same conclusion. She's not crazy. In fact, we think we believe in her now. This idea that we kind of came up with in the last hundred years to write her off as crazy. Some people were saying, oh, she's epileptic or or she's schizophrenic. It just doesn't really pass the test in a meaningful way because it just it's like a modern way to explain something we don't understand. And that again, it just makes the story stranger. She was allowed. At this point to pick some people to join her so she gets a squire she adds her brothers to her military team she kind of, you know come on guys and she's given some armor by the king um they asked her do you need a weapon and she says no no no, i don't need a weapon there's an ancient cathedral over here and i'm gonna take a sword from over there and people kind of laugh it off but they but they send some people over there and go, oh, go look for an ancient sword and they find one and it's in pretty good condition some fighting condition that had been buried under the dirt so they go well you were right, there is a sword over here, here you go, that's her sword. And so now she has this armor, she makes this banner and it just has the name of the Lord Jesus on it. That will be her symbol throughout the war. We have, you know, paperwork and letters that we believe are written by her and this is just, this, this banner is the judgment seat of Christ with the name of Christ on it. And that's what she would use as her official symbol. Um, and she would ride to the front and of the armies and wave it as she's in different battles. And so she would ride at the very front of this reinforcement army headed to Orleans. And if nothing else, you can definitely say that Joan was not hiding. That she's saying, "This is not. This is a mission from Christ. That's what I'm about. I got the judgment seat on my symbol. I'm wearing a banner that says his name. That's that's what's going on here." Now, some questions. Uh, some historians question of whether she was seen as a symbol of hope to a failing regime. Maybe she's kind of like a mascot. You know, like we need something. Let's tell the people God's on our side. Others say that maybe it was a belief maybe she was actually sent from God. Maybe that's why Charles picked it. Nothing else was working. Perhaps maybe she is what God is sending. And I think about it from the king's perspective for a second. You have failed every way, left and right, for 100 years to stop the English. You're on the edge of the end. You can't even be crowned. You're losing your last city, um, Orleans. Yet another city that's going through a siege. You've seen already how this story plays out. Things are desperate. What kind of condition are you in as the king? If you allow a farm girl to lead your army, if you go, this is our last hurrah, let's just put this girl who came into my palace five minutes ago to run the stage. Are you going to do that if you're not pretty sure, or at least there's a real chance she's being used by God? And at the same time, you are very desperate. You're at your wit's end. Maybe you're praying. And hoping for a miracle maybe you're just hoping maybe this is actually from God and he's asking me to trust something that makes no sense and so I'm just gonna do that because I have nothing else nothing else has worked for a hundred years our strength as France has ended let's just try it this way and maybe God will do something great and maybe it will be remembered she promised something back when the theologians questioned her she said the proof can't come from your questioning of me the proof has to come from the Battle of Orleans everything for her was riding on whether she could win in orleans whether she could do what was not able to be done by the soldiers and for her that required them to actually listen to her so when she gets there the leaders of orleans see this woman showing up and they yeah, I'm, I'm from god and they go you know no you're not uh okay so at first none of them listen to her and that you can, can see why that would happen uh she was told that they could not win without more soldiers um and they, and she was told that she, you know i she's like i want to go attack and they're like no we need more soldiers we can't possibly attack them right now we're com- we're barely hanging on with what we had and so she kind of puts around for a week she tells the soldiers what she's about she's encouraging them she's trying to get a battle started trying to get people excited but there's just nothing working and one day she's meditating when well, suddenly she stands up she throws her armor on she grabs her sword that ancient you know cathedral sword and says to everyone around her it's time to fight i got to get to the fight and from where they were in the city no one even knew a fight was happening but she just takes off running um, and they find on the other side of the city, there is a fight occurring actually, an English fort just outside of the city. There is a little bit of a battle happening. So she arrives, she said, we're gonna take this fort. And they do, they take that fort. And the next day she passes out a letter of defiance to the English. And she says, hey, we're gonna win this war. Kind of like a war pamphlet. People are getting fired up. They're liking this girl and they're liking what she's saying. She's saying stuff they wanted to hear. Uh, The next day she's, you know, goes to another fort, they charge it. But when they get there, the English retreat to a better fort. So they actually take a fort without even having to fight it. And then they go to the other fort where no one was expecting them. And they take that one too. She's, she's actually pulling it off. And soon the leaders are listening to her and she's starting to call some shots because she's been successful now, tried and true. Historians do not know what to make of this part of the story. They go kind of, on the one hand, they had just been changing up strategies. Did she just kind of get lucky and swing in there? Or on the other hand, It just seemed like they're actually taking some orders from her and listening to her and saying, no, there's something to what she's saying. Now, she promised two things at the Battle of Orleans. First, that she would give proof, but second, that she would get injured there. One night, she she had a monk with her at the time, and she looks at him and goes, stay close to me the next day because you're going to see me bloody. And in the middle of the fight the next day, she's leading a charge, and she gets hit with a crossbow. She gets it fixed up she she recovers from this crossbow hit doesn't kill her doesn't it doesn't even permanently injure in fact later on that night she's back in there in the battlefield she picks up her banner her judgment seat of christ thing and uh, waves it around had been dropped in a ditch and when they see her back they knew she had been injured they see her back they see her waving the flag everyone gets excited and they go you know what we can do this and once again they take another fort And all these victories start piling up. And soon the English go, you know what? We're not winning this fight. This is the first time the French are kind of pushing us back. They retreat. They don't really know what to do. So they leave Orleans. And suddenly, both things that she had promised that she was going to take Orleans and that she was going to be injured but survived came true. And
2: it kind of changes the game. Yeah, so Orleans is, is now recaptured by the French. Part of her quest, part of her mission was to get this king of France uh, anointed as king in Rheims that's the city they needed to get to to do that and so uh, Joan of Arc spends a little bit more time there around Orleans cleaning up things running off any rebellion groups that are around the area and she eventually returns to the king and says all right now is our time we need to get to Rheims you need to get anointed as king The, the king does not want to do it he saw no real motivation yeah. because Rhymes is, again, in enemy hands right now. Paris uh, is half the distance. He said, why don't we go to Paris? Why don't why don't we do Paris? Paris isn't nearly as overrun with enemies as Rhymes is. We could, we could do like a little makeshift uh, crowning ceremony in Paris. But Joan convinced him, no, we have to go to Rhymes. And this was mostly due to the lords and generals that were with Joan of Arc And the testimonies that they had saying, hey, we we are actually fully behind this Joan girl now. You should do what she says. They had all of these stories of how she saved their lives. There was one that was about to get hit by a cannon that was going off, but Joan warned him. There was another that was about to get crushed by a stone that was hitting his head, but Joan pulled him out of the way and saved him from that as well. So she has this reputation as... being for the people, caring for the people, saving the people, and leading them to victory in that, and so with the testimony of the generals, uh, the king said, "All right, we're going to go to rhymes And he gathered twelve thousand men, and they set out for this long march. And by this point, the English were starting to get sick of her. Her reputation was starting to become known throughout the enemy army of of, of her home country of France, and the English they, they saw this as turning into a religious war. Right, God. Is on France's side and the and the English being a, a godless country, a godless side of the war, and so they said that she was being possessed by the devil. After all, why wouldn't God be on the side of the English side? Which is a fun question to ask. Yeah, you know, we have the the retrospect, hindsight, twenty twenty. It's interesting to look at. You know, why would God uh, be on one side but not the other? Both were Christian countries. Both had the same Catholic church in both places, why would God be specifically for France and not specifically also for the English at the time? I don't know. We, we don't, <laughs> don't have the know. answer. We like the English, want to know. Yeah. <laughs> On the way to rhymes they encountered an English army, and Joan commanded the army to pursue the English army, and the English were obliterated they tried to retreat but they failed to do so and they ended up destroying what they found out to be one of the last large major mobile English armies that was active in France there and it ended up being a huge victory that they kind of stumbled across just on their travels but it ended up really crippling the English army and the responsiveness that they had in France but soon they ran into another problem their supplies were low food was scarce they hadn't left the north for a while, and so this wasn't something that they had really prepared for. Again, this had been going on for generations where they were kinda at a at a saw at this lock here, so when you're journeying into enemy territory, uh, the supply chain was not something they really had put in place. There was a city nearby named Troyes, and they decided they need to take it uh, to gather supplies from it, food and supplies from it. The town had no interest in surrendering to them, but the town sent a preacher, an apocalyptic man, to test Joan of Arc and to see what she was up to, what her motivation's were. And this preacher was was fairly popular in France during this time, and he came back a pretty big fan of Joan. He's said, this, this girl checks out. Everything she's talking about checks out. But the city ignored this preacher uh, because they didn't want to give up their supplies. They didn't want to give up their town to help this army that was outside. So Joan of Arc, uh, They had no choice but to take the town by force. And so they invaded, they took it, and inside the city, they found lots and lots of beans. Beans. And there shouldn't normally have been this much beans in the town. This was abnormal to have this big of a stockpile of beans. But that apocalyptic preacher that Joan had those conversations with, he was convinced that the world was going to come to an end later that year and so that they needed to... Stock he, he thought Armageddon was coming mm-hmm. and I guess in some ways you could you for could, that town Yeah, kind you of could was. see it as that that uh that Armageddon for that town But the city had been stockpiling lots and lots of beans so that they could withstand a siege and Again, didn't go well for that town, <laughs> but it did feed an army that would later retake France. So, could you see it's it? Crazy. Could you see it working out? It's could crazy. You, it could. Could it be divine? You know, sort strategy there. Uh,
3: is a uh, you have to say something about the fact that the only food they could have possibly had was there in an abundance and enough to feed the entire army the rest of the way. That is, and that it was planted there by a famous preacher who had convinced the town to plant it. That is just one of the weirdest weird. coincidences of all time it,
2: it, I... and there are a lot of weird coincidences yeah. that's why that's why this story sticks out as yep. as that debate is there supernatural stuff happening or is this just a series of really impressive coincidences bean town was one of the things that really threw me for a <laughs> loop <laughs> hey thanks for checking out this uh, deep dive preview If uh, you like what you hear, again, consider supporting us on Patreon. You get access to our ad-free feed, and you get access to these deep dives that come out every once in a while. And most of all, you you help support Revive Studios and what we're doing here and the content that we make here. It it really helps us. We honestly couldn't make everything that we do without uh, the supporters that support us on Patreon. So we thank you guys so much.
0: This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where you'll hear from Christian female entrepreneurs, politicians, ministry leaders, authors, athletes, CEOs, and more. I'm Erica Anderson, mom of two, writer, and host and creator of Worth Your Time. I created this podcast because I wanted to hear from more women like me who were interested in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. How do we navigate the choppy waters of partisan politics? How do we engage with culture honorably as Christian professionals? I know you don't have a lot of time, and that's why I make every second worth it on this show. You'll hear from women that aren't on every other Christian podcast, and we get really real, because I don't know how to function any other way. Episodes drop every other Tuesday. Hope to see you there.
1: This is the story of the one.